Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Amen. Word of God for our special consideration this morning is our second lesson, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21, as printed in your bulletins and already read. Dear friends in Christ, extra as a word by itself usually means something additional. Whatever is extra is probably like whatever it is being added to. It's just something more, perhaps something unexpected. But extra as a prefix attached to another word gets back to its origins in Latin, meaning outside or beyond. So then, the common word extraordinary refers to something anything but common. It is talking about what is entirely beyond ordinary and unlike everything else it might be compared to, which makes extraordinary an ideal word to describe our Christian faith, especially what the Apostle Paul lays out for us in incredible detail in verses 14 through 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. He touches on a whole bunch of of different major doctrines and distinctives in, in, in relatively few verses here. But in each case, what he tells us makes clear that what we have been given in the gospel And what we believe is extraordinary. As much as some form of cultural Christianity might be presented as the plain vanilla normal for religious identity and understanding in our society, the truth is that true biblical Christianity is and always has been and always will be counter-cultural, uncommon, unexpected, beyond ordinary, and unlike everything else it might be compared to. We can start with a practical example. What motivates us as Christians? Now, if we wanted to do a big survey and find out what motivates people, what drives them to do the things that they do or to not do the things that they don't do, we would get a a variety of answers. But the same ones would repeat themselves. They would be common. They would probably include ideas like, I'm just trying to be the best person I can be. Or, You know, I don't really think about that. I just live each day as it comes. I I think about what a good person would do, and that's what I try to do. Maybe I just try not to do anything to anyone else that I wouldn't want anyone doing to me. And the more spiritually minded might say something like, I'm just trying to be good enough for God to let me into heaven. And both God and heaven, in that case, could be defined in all sorts of ways. 
if we were to put a finer point on it and ask people, why do you try to do good things and to be a good person? More would probably mention a goal of getting into heaven. Some would say it's just the right thing to do. Others would talk about the value of a clean conscience. Some cynics would say it's just the best way to get along and to get ahead in the world. And the even more cynical might say that there really isn't any reason to be good, and they pretty much just do whatever they feel like doing without rationalizing why. And what that last group says is really how many of the others actually live, even if they don't realize it. What would be really interesting, though, would be to ask all those people what they think motivates Christians and why believers want to be good. Because those people would naturally assume that we are moved by basically the same things that move them, the same things that commonly move everyone else. And they would be wrong. Because the love of Christ compels us. By definition, no non-Christian can be motivated the same way, and more importantly, this motivation is completely different, extraordinary, because it is entirely and absolutely centered outside of ourselves. We do not do what we do to gain anything from God or anyone, or to feel better about ourselves, or to make our lives better. There is no self-interest, only Christ-interest. His amazing, unlimited, absolutely committed love for us inspires drives, changes, encourages, and empowers us. And, and in return, we love him with a love that, that reflects all of that out to the world in everything that we do. It is not a, a duty or an obligation that burdens us, but at the same time, we, we see no other options for how we live our lives because it is the only way we want to live. The love of Christ compels us. Since he gave his life and died for us so that we could have eternal life, we no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died in our place and was raised again. And living like that is extraordinary. But what is most extraordinary of all here is what Paul calls the ministry or message of reconciliation. It's unusual in the first place because it starts with the truth that most people and worldviews and even most religions prefer to ignore. The truth that every individual's most fundamental problem is that he or she is in conflict with God and deserves harsh and eternal punishment from him as a result of that rebellion. 
This is the price of sin and, and our futile grasping at an impossible independence. Exactly what Adam and Eve were warned about, but did anyway. What every person desperately needs there, whether they choose to acknowledge it or not, is a permanent resolution to their conflict with God. They need peace, not just in their own hearts, but with their Creator. They need peace, not just for the moment, but for eternity. Now, what is normal is for people to try to make that peace themselves. Some presume that living a good life will do the trick, but fail to understand that they can hardly convince God to be nice to them while their sins keep them at war with Him. Others seem to think that all it takes is attitude. Live as though you've already got it in good with God, and He'll have to let you into heaven. But that forgets that God is a just God with a perfect memory. You may try to ignore the sins and rebellion that separate you from Him, but He cannot. And now here is the extraordinary thing. Instead of insisting that those responsible for the breach in the relationship be the ones to repair it, instead of insisting that sinners pay for their own sins, God determined to do everything that was needed to make peace and bring the rebels home. Because he loved the world in spite of its sin, he decided to pay the price necessary to save the world. He reconciled it to himself in Christ. The trespasses that all had committed, every arrogant and presumptuous step over the line of his will, he counted those trespasses against his son instead of against the sinners. In the darkness of Good Friday, on that blood-stained cross, when the Father looked down from heaven at Jesus, in that moment he did not see his only begotten Son, but beloved from all eternity, but instead saw the guilt and guile and filth and bile and stench and stubborn pride of all humanity from beginning to end, and he let his righteous wrath against all that iniquity burn against his perfectly innocent Son instead of us. And as a result, all our sins were paid for. The debt canceled for good. And even more, Christ's own true holiness was transferred to us in exchange for our guilt so that we might be the perfect people that we are required to be to enter heaven and live in his presence. God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who would have thought it? Who would ever have dared to suggest such a thing to the Almighty God? 
no human mind could ever have conceived it. Only the great and gracious Lord of grace would have made such a plan and carried it out. There is nothing more extraordinary than this message of God reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So what do we do with it? Well, one thing we certainly will not do is treat it as something common or ordinary. We won't take the gospel of God's grace for granted. We won't look at the cross as just some cultural symbol. We won't use the name of Jesus Christ casually or flippantly or angrily or cheaply as though what he did for us was no big deal and as though his honor is of no importance. What we will do, not just once, but every day, because we still sin every day and are tempted to unbelief every day, what we will do is what Paul urges on all of us here. Be reconciled to God. Christ has done the work already. So we daily drown our sinful natures in repentance, turn from sin and turn to the Lord again and again, trusting Him, not only for forgiveness and peace, but also for the power and the guidance we need to live the godly lives He has created us to live. There's no good reason to delay we have no ability to do this on our own. Now, of course, the, the ordinary thing to do would be to just let our sins kind of pile up until maybe they seemed to cause problems for us and then perhaps go to God with them. Or maybe just presume that repentance is for others, not good Christian people like us. But we, we aren't those people. We are no longer going to be satisfied with ordinary. That's not who we are. That's not how we identify. It's kind of ironic that these days there's a push in our society for everyone to find an identity that sets him or her apart as special or as deserving special treatment. And yet, if everyone is doing so, that's hardly special. What's kind of sad is that, that in many cases, these identities are reopening old wounds and rehashing old grievances. And it's no surprise that this isn't leading to a new age of peace, kindness, and understanding. But Paul reminds us that we do not see ourselves or other people the way the world does, the way we used to before we belonged to Jesus. We regard no one according to the flesh. There is no question or confusion about who we are and what we are. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Now, we may still decide to let how we were born or, or what we have done describe us, our education or ethnic heritage, our, our skin color or social standing. 
But what defines us now, now that God has put his name on us in baptism and claimed us as his own on the basis of his son's sacrifice, what what defines us now is what we have been made glorious, God-pleasing, beautiful, new creations in Christ. Sure, the sinful flesh still sticks around and works against God's will in us, but that's not who we are. So it is not our weaknesses or our disadvantages that define us, not our ambitions or achievements, not our emotions or advantages, not our histories or anyone else's opinions of us. All that matters is what God has made us to be and what he thinks of us. And that, that is perfect. In Christ, Every believer has been remade into the person that he or she should have been if sin had never existed in us. We are born again in baptism and by the Holy Spirit. We are new creations, not what we used to be and not who anyone else is either. We are extraordinary. Which brings us back to where we started, how we live. If we have been made such extraordinary people, having been delivered from sin and death by such an extraordinary Savior and reconciled by such an extraordinary God, then what will our days and nights, our words and actions, our posts and likes look like? Will you speak lovingly respectfully, patiently, to your spouse, children, parents, siblings, roommates, or snarl, snap, and roll your eyes? Will you treat your job or your schoolwork as your calling from God and as a chance to show His love to other people, or complain and moan? And do as little as you can. Will the things that you say and do in public and in private, in person and in social media, will they cause people to say, there's someone who follows Jesus Christ. I want to know more. Or will they bring shame to his name? There is actually no question we will be the Christians that we are. The old has gone. The new has come. We will remember extraordinary. The love of Christ compels us. He died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves but for him who died in their place and was raised again. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.